The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Well, in this world that we're living in, it's right for us to ask what is permanent and what is temporary. Uh, This is a world of constant change. The older you get, the more you see that. Things just fade away, pass away. And we've had significant events even in our culture with 9-11 in which uh, the Twin Towers just melted away in in a matter of hours and gone forever. Uh, Or we also saw in the pandemic a number of businesses or patterns of life that ended Uh, And we had a sense of the fragility of our life and of our society. So I feel the older I get, the more I see how temporal uh, is everything around me. Uh, What is uh, permanent? One answer commonly given is the ground beneath our feet is is, uh, permanent. It says in Psalm 104 verse 5, God set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. But I had the experience, my family and I had the experience when we were missionaries in Japan of an earthquake. It's something most people don't actually live through. But I felt the ground beneath my feet shaking, felt my, the entire house we were living in shaking. We were not at the epicenter, but we weren't far from it. Uh, the epicenter was in Awaji Island, uh, just off uh, the coast of the major city of Kobe, 7.3 on the Richter scale, resulting in over 6,000 deaths in the city of Kobe. It was a devastating earthquake. Uh, the elevated Hanshin Expressway, uh, which is a technological marvel, toppled over. Reinforced concrete and all that just fell over because the ground on which it was supported cracked open. Uh, a number of months later, my family and I went to Kobe, uh, Kobe and, and we uh, saw the rift, well, one of the rifts in the ground. Pretty foolishly put Nathaniel and Jenny into it. Uh, we have a picture. If some of you would like to see that, there were still some tremors and aftershocks months later, but I don't think we could resist uh, the opportunity of doing that. Um, But we also saw some very sobering sights. Uh, As I walked around with my brother-in-law, Bill, we walked around and we saw just huge piles of rubble that, of course, still hadn't been cleared away. I saw one particular office building, a six-story, very modern office building, a steel and glass structure in which one one of the floors had collapsed, the fourth floor. So it went from three to five, and that, that, that floor just collapsed. It was gone. So some kind of structural weakness there. And it was strange because you could see the Venetian blinds sticking out, straight out from that now missing floor. And the entire building was slanted over about 20 degrees. Earthquakes are terrifying because they are a sign of impermanence of even the ground beneath our feet. In our text today, Jesus spoke of the impermanence of every created thing in the universe. But he also spoke of the one permanent thing on which we can build our lives and our souls. Look at verse 31. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. It's an incredible statement. What what is a word? What is that? It seems like the most evanescent, temporary thing that could ever be. It's a sound that goes out into the air, like the whisper of the wind that, that floats through the air, and then it disappears, like faint echo in a, in a cavern. It seems like nothing could be more fleeting, more temporary, more of a shadow of reality, more like a nothing than a word. For many of us, words are the very picture of impermanence, something that lasts only as long as it causes the eardrum to vibrate. But Jesus said, his words will last forever. 
and heaven and earth won't. Now, the context of this statement couldn't be more dramatic, more powerful. Jesus has predicted the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem to his disciples. Verse 2, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. But Jesus is saying in verse 31, not just the temple, not just the city of Jerusalem, everything you see with your eyes is temporary. Well, the disciples, when they heard of the prediction of the destruction, came to him on the Mount of Olives and asked him that three-part question, tell us, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? What are the signs by which we can see that final day approaching? Now, by this time in Mark, as we're walking through Mark 13, Jesus has already traced out some amazing aspects of the future. In verses 5 through 13 of Mark uh, Mark 13, he describes in general, but striking terms, how life in this sin-cursed world will progress between the first and second comings of Christ. There will be wars and rumors of wars, and he said famines and indeed earthquakes in various places. There would also be the special and ongoing vicious persecution of the church. They'll be brought before tribunals, and they would suffer in their witness concerning him. There would also be a constant and escalating apostasy of of, of believers, of people that claim to be believers, under the pressure of that persecution, and therefore the call, he who stands firm to the end will be saved, the need for perseverance. But more than anything, the measurable sign of the progress between the first and second coming is the preaching of the gospel in all nations, is a testimony in all nations. We can see measurable progress being made between the first and second coming of the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria even to the ends of the earth. Then he turns the corner in Mark 13 and gives us the special abomination of desolation teaching. Now that's something that's unique to that specific generation, and indeed I argued to the final generation as well, abomination of desolation. First, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in the year 70, AD 70. And then I believe the foretelling, as it was, so it will be, as it was, so it will be, at the end of the Antichrist, setting himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God, 2 Thessalonians 2. And at that time, both in the year 70, but then again at the end of the world, the need to run for your lives, the tremendous urgency of Christians to run for their lives. Then, as we saw last week, the description of the actual second coming. Look at verses 24 through 27. In those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. So we looked at that last week. Now, the sending out of the angels to gather the elect is what's commonly known as the rapture, the rescue of the elect from the surface of the earth to be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 1 Thessalonians 4 teaches that very, very plainly. Now, the things that the Jews thought were permanent, the temple, the city of Jerusalem, Jesus revealed actually were going to be destroyed, not one stone left on another. Jesus' disciples were stunned, and they wanted to ask more questions. When would it happen? 
And what signs can we see as it approaches? So that's what we're going to look at today. And then deeper, I think, the question, if, if all of this is impermanent, what is permanent? What can I build my life on that won't move? What can, I, what can I establish my life and my soul on that will not be cast away? So he answers that. And he, he gives uh, the sense of when this will happen. Um, and the answer he gives for the rest of this discourse, both in Mark 13, but even in more detail in Matthew 24, 25, he says, look for the signs for these things that happen. Add up those signs. Know that the Lord will come, it says, like a thief in the night, suddenly and unexpectedly. So you need to be ready at any moment. You need to be ready and be faithful. But concerning what's permanent, what, what can I build my life upon? The unifying theme of this sermon today is the word of Christ. The word of Christ. The trustworthiness of Christ's words. We're going to look at aspects of the words of Christ its clarity, its immediacy, its difficulty, and then its permanence. In the end, all we have as we look ahead to the second coming of Christ is this. We have the words of Scripture and no other source of information. It's going to come from here. It'll come from nowhere else. And so everything comes down in the end to Christ's words. So let's start initially with clarity, the clarity of Christ's words and the fact that we will be able to perceive certain things if we understand both the Scripture and the signs of the times. And so with eschatology, it's a combination of the two. We're going to see in the Scripture specific things laid out. We've already seen them, but we're going to keep seeing them. And then we're going to see current events. He said, when you see the abomination of desolation, when you see that, put it together, you'll know what to do. You'll know what to do. Now, uh, to get at this clarity, he gives the parable, a parable of the fig tree. Look at verse 28, 29. Now, learn, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. So Jesus gives this parable of the fig tree. A parable is a, a common everyday story that has a spiritual lesson, spiritual point, in which you take kind of common things that we're used to seeing, frequently agricultural, but not always. And if you have the interpretive key, the insider information, it makes everything clear. If you don't, it makes things worse. So Jesus told his disciples that they were the insiders. And he said in Mark 4, 11, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but not to them. To those on the outside, they get everything in parables. And by what he means there is unexplained parables. All right, so parables don't make any sense if you don't get the interpretive key, if you don't have that. I've said before, all you have to do is just go to some public place, like a mall, whatever, and go up and just tell them one of Jesus' parables with no explanation and see what they say. If they're not a church person, not a Christian, they will look at you like you're nuts. And that's the way it is with parables. It doesn't make anything clear if you don't understand it. But if you understand it, it makes everything clear. And so we have this parable of the fig tree. Now, the thing with all of Jesus' agricultural parables in particular is it takes time, it, uh, it takes time to develop. You get a, a seed planted, and then it springs up and grows and develops. You've got this idea of, of patience and of things developing, growing. We're familiar with that. Now, the point Jesus makes here with eschatology of end times things, the, the, the lesson of the fig tree is just like happens with the seasons— 
you're trying to understand the seasons, you can look at the trees. We do this. There's certain trees that bud at certain times, and you look at that, and, and until you see that, you don't think that summer is near, even though you have ridiculous 68-degree weather in the middle of January. What in the world? I came out on Wednesday night, and it was 68. But I didn't think summer was near because I was looking at the trees. I knew I was going to preach this parable, so I figured I'd give that illustration. So, No, summer's not near, even though it's 68 degrees. Just weather's weird because it was 17 a few days before that. But it takes, and now as soon as the twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. So when you see these things, you know that the coming of Christ is imminent. So despite the fact that there's an essential mystery to the timing of the second coming, the signs leading up mean that we're not in the dark. We can see things developing. We can see things coming. So there needs to be, as I've been saying, a combination of the Word of God rightly understood and current events rightly understood when you see those things come together. Now, Jesus says, when you see all these things, the signs that I've been giving. Now, of course, there are those vague, nondescript signs. By that, I mean they're not unique to any generation or any era, such as wars, rumors of wars, famines, and earthquakes. That's just a sign that we're not in the new heaven, new earth yet. We're still in the sin era. We're in the misery era. So it's just good to know that. So wars, rumors of wars, famines, and earthquakes just shows we're in convulsions now, and that's good to know. But then you've got, as I said, that measurable progress of the gospel in verse 10, Mark 13, 10. The gospel is preached in the whole world as a testament to all nations. That wasn't true a week after Jesus ascended to heaven or a year after Jesus ascended to heaven. It had only begun. That process had only begun. But now we've had 20 centuries of progress of the gospel. Then we've got the teaching and the abomination of desolation, which we walk through what that is. You know, Gentile power, all right? taking a holy space, a sacred space, taking it over, blaspheming, claiming that he's God, demanding God, uh, to worship as God, all of that stuff predicted in the book of Daniel, abomination of desolation. And then that whole running for your life, the great tribulation, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. Now, we have much more information about this, not just in, in Matthew 24, there's more detail in Matthew but even more in the book of Revelation. So if you look at the book of Revelation, we have the seven, seven seals, you have the, the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. The Holy Spirit knew very well he was going to give his people, uh, subsequent to the time of the apostles, or uh, based on, on their testimony, 66 books, indeed 27 books in the New Testament. And so there's a division of labor. And so there's more information than just in, in Mark 13 here. There's more signs that we can look at in the book of Revelation. He knew very well that he was going to inspire John to give us that information. And if you go to Revelation 8 and you look at the ecological disasters that are described there, that I think, and when I preach through the book of Revelation, cannot be symbolic of, every, of anything. A third of the sea turning to blood and a third of the living creatures in the sea dying and a third of the drinking water on earth undrinkable. What is that? The green uh, grass burning up, the trees burning up, a third of the trees burning, all that. What is that? Ecological disaster such as the world has never seen. We've never seen anything like that. And if you were to argue, well, Revelation's an apocalyptic symbolic book, I could find, what's it a symbol of? What is a, a third of the sea turning into blood and a third of the living creatures in the sea dying a symbol of? I think it's going to happen. 
And I think it's the consummation of the terrible effect of human sin on the ecology of earth. Just like happened with Adam's sin and the ground was cursed because of him and it produced thorns and thistles. That's just the end of that journey. So when you see those ecological disasters happening and you see people unable to drink water where they live and you see forming a one-world government and you start seeing a particular leader rising, when you see those things, you know the end is near. So I think that's what he's saying. Now, the fig tree, some people say the fig tree is Israel, all right? I, maybe you've heard that, maybe you haven't. I'm going to spend a lot of time on this. But I remember back in 1988, a former NASA missionary uh, wrote a book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. I sure hope it wasn't, because I definitely was left behind uh, at that point, all right? But one of his reasons had to do with the formation of the nation of Israel in 1948, May 14, 1948. And that within one generation, 40 years after that, the end would come. Chuck Smith, Pastor Chuck Smith, preached this kind of thing as well. So there's a number of people. I, I, don't, I don't look at that. It's been a lot more than one generation since Israel was uh, formed, 1948. It's been 76 years. However, I do think it is right for us to combine current events and Scripture and look at that. So that's what I think the idea is of the budding of the fig tree. Secondly, the immediacy of the Word of God, the immediacy of the Word of God. He says it's right at the door. It's near right at the door. Verse 29, even when you see these things, even so when you see these things happen, you know that it is near right at the door. What is near? His coming. The second coming is near. So there will be believers on earth, Bible believers filled with the Spirit, who will know that the end is near. It's imminent because they see these things, but it hasn't happened yet. And so that's the sense of immediacy of something that hasn't happened yet, because we believe that the Bible is a supernatural book and does, in fact, predict the future. We believe in the predictions of the future. We've seen the track record of prophecy, things that were predicted and have now been fulfilled, and we're waiting for yet unfulfilled un, uh, uh, things yet to come, such as the second coming. And so there is a sense of the immediacy of an event that hasn't come yet, but based on the word of God, for us it's immediate. We know it's coming. As it says in another place, we're not in the dark so that this day should surprise us. But we've been instructed. You're being instructed right now. You've been instructed before. And so you hear this. It's the sense of immediacy, and that's important. But I want to say something more than this. I don't think I'm spiritualizing by saying this. There's another sense of immediacy which is important for me. There is, by faith in the Word of God, the ability to have an immediate encounter with invisible spiritual realities by faith. We, we are able to come right into the presence of an invisible God by the ministry of the Word. And we are able to have a sense of an invisible God speaking directly to us by the Word of God. This is vital. This is the immediacy of the Word. It's how we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, isn't it? It is by His Word, by His Spirit, that we have that relation, that immediacy. So I thought about verses that teach us. Probably the strongest for me that teaches us is in Hebrews chapter 3, where the author to Hebrews in verse 9 quoting a very old scripture, Psalm 95, introduces it with these words. So, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. You realize the importance of that statement? Let me intensify the present tense. 
So as the Holy Spirit is saying right now in Psalm 95, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. That makes even the most ancient psalm written a thousand years before Christ alive. It's living and active for us. The Holy Spirit is saying something to us right now. And what is he saying? If you hear me speaking in the word, don't harden your heart. Speaking about what? Anything the Spirit is speaking in the word. Don't harden your heart, but yield to it. That's a sense of the immediacy of the word of God. And then with this idea of a door, all right, look at verse 29. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. I mean, the door hasn't opened yet. Christ hasn't come yet, but he's on the door. It made me think about Revelation 3.20, which is a very powerful verse. Revelation 3.20, Christ says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. O. Hallisby, in his book Prayer, made that the central text of a healthy prayer life. We frequently hear Revelation 3.20 connected with evangelism, right? And it's like you're going to, you know, Christ is knocking on the door of your heart. And that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. But I think it would be wrong for even mature Christians to cast aside the power of that verse. Jesus is knocking at the door, wants you to open it, and he wants to have a meal with you. He wants to sit down and eat with you, and you with him. The redoubling of the language says this is an intense, intimate relationship we have with Christ through the ministry of the Word. So what I get putting all this together is, I can and should experience the second coming day now by faith, even though I know it can't come imminently. I'll tell you more about that in a second. But I should experience now by faith, reading the word of God, rightly dividing it, what will that day be like? The final day of human history. And I should experience that right now. That's the immediacy of the word of God. Now, what do I mean by saying it can't happen today? Well, you've been listening to what I've said about Revelation 8 and all that. Do you see the ocean, a third of the ocean turned to blood and a third of the living creatures dying? No. All right, get, getting very specific. Let's go right to 2 Thessalonians 2. Don't turn there, but 2 Thessalonians, Paul's writing to the Thessalonians who had a very aggressive and even realized eschatology. They had been lied to. They had been told that they had missed the day of the Lord. Furthermore, reading between the lines with Thessalonians, it seems like some of them weren't working. They had quit their jobs. There wasn't a need to hold down a job because Jesus is coming like today. And he's pumping the brakes and all that in 2 Thessalonians 2 saying, Stop. That day cannot occur until X happens. Now, if you just rightly divide that, you're like, all right, I can't think the second coming can happen until the events listed in 2 Thessalonians 2 occur. And that's all the stuff in the Abomination of Desolation sermon. I already preached that. When you see all that, then you know that box has been checked. It's imminent. So you're like, all right, so pastor, am I supposed to expect the second coming any day or not? Well, yes and no. (laughs) I told you the word's complex. Yes and no. I'm trying to feel the weight of 2 Thessalonians 2, the pump the brakes passage to say, it can't happen until the man of sin sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. However, I'm not going to trust my own exegesis. 
and deny the clear, repeated teaching by Jesus that I need to be ready anytime for the second coming. Like the five wise and five foolish virgins, I need to be ready now. I need to buy my oil now. I need to be ready now. So this much I do know, there is a personal eschatology for you called the day of your death. That's when it all ends for you. Do you know what that day is? You don't. So the same preparation you do for the second coming, you have to do for your own death. And since you don't know that day, it's going to end up the same. So in the end, and I'm not going to tell you, still the thunder of sermons yet to come, but basically comes down to two things with the second coming. Be ready and be faithful. And be faithful means do the work God has entrusted you to do. Don't quit your jobs. Don't whatever. Keep, like farmers need to keep sowing and reaping, and they need to keep doing things. We need to keep doing work. We need to keep doing evangelism and church work and all that until that day comes. We be faithful with the job given to us. We also need to be ready. For me, as a Bible teacher, I'm ready thinking, I'm not so sure about my eschatology, but I'm sure Jesus is coming back, and I'm sure he told me to be ready anytime. That much I do know. So I, that's how I put all of that uh, together. We need to keep watch and be ready at any hour. That's the immediacy of Christ's word. Thirdly, the difficulty. Well, we already covered some of the difficulty. That was difficult. And there's more difficulty yet to come. Verse 30, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Let me read it again. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Do you see any difficulty in that verse? It's like, well, that's why I'm glad you're the pastor and I'm not. Look, many of Christ's words are difficult. The Scripture's difficult. We don't expect all of it to be easy. Many times he is taught, and they didn't understand what he was saying. Happened a lot. Mark 9.32, they did not understand. Luke 18.34, they did not understand. Now, this is a hotly debated passage. You know, it's a solemn declaration Jesus gives. Now, we can, the way I approach difficult passages is I, I talk about things that cannot be the answer. I actually kind of identify them and say, it can't be this, can't be this, can't be this. I think it's helpful. All right, so the word generation in this verse cannot refer to the human race generally. In other words, the human race will not be extinct before I come back. What's the point in saying that? Well, that's good to know. <laughs> well, it tells you nothing, all right? And neither does it mean that the church would not be extinct before he comes back. So we'll set that aside. All right, here's another thing that it seems like it does mean, but it doesn't. The generation of people who are alive right now when I'm speaking these words will still be alive when all of the events I've just described, such as the sun, the moon, and the stars ending, and Jesus coming in the clouds with power and great glory, and all the angels sent out. That is not what that means. How, how do I know that? Because it didn't happen. That would mean that Jesus was wrong. So can we all agree to not do that? Okay, because if Jesus is wrong about that, there's no point in guessing at where he's wrong somewhere else. This is the doctrine of inerrancy. There's no mistake here. All right, so now what do we do? Now we try to come up with the best description of what this could mean. And even though you don't feel great about it, you end up saying, I'm going to move on. 
and I've done my best to explain this verse. And I'm not throwing out inerrancy, and I'm certainly not throwing out the Bible just because I can't fully understand every aspect of it. So there are some reasonable explanations. The first is that Jesus is really only speaking about the fall of, of Jerusalem at this point. And saying at this point, in verse 30, the not one stone left on another, the destruction of the temple and indeed of the city of Jerusalem will happen within one generation of this present moment. And that is true. And that is a significant prophecy, actually, if you think about it. It is a significant prophecy. I mean, Jerusalem went centuries uh, between being sacked. And so that validates Jesus as a prophet if that's what he meant that the destruction of Jerusalem would be within one generation, and it was. Um, that, in support of that approach, that's the co most common use of the word generation, like the people alive today, people alive within this, this realm. That's, so that makes you feel good about the word generation, and then you're like, all right. The problem is the full statement. Look again at verse 30. I tell you the truth. This generation will not pass away until what? All these things have happened. All what things? We'll go back a few verses. We'll remember last week's sermon. It's like, all that? No, that didn't happen. That's the very thing that didn't happen. So what do you do with the phrase, all these things? That's a challenge. Okay, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And at that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. So that's hard. All right, another possibility is that Jesus, the word generation is mistranslated and it could refer to this race. And he's specifically talking about the Jewish people, and that's another uh, conservative interpretation of this, that the Jews will not become extinct before the end of the world. The Jews will not become extinct before the end, end of the world. It fits the context because obviously the Romans came in with a great intention of slaughter, and they killed... Josephus tells us over a million and a half Jews by the edge of the sword. There was a rage that went to heaven when they pulled down every stone, one from another. They would have loved to obliterate the Jewish race at that point. And this is actually no small promise on Jesus' part. The Jews have been consistently hated in every generation. Again and again, there has been anti-Semitism and genocidal uh, uh, attacks on the Jewish people. Right in the Bible, the book of Esther, Remember? Haman and, and the plot against, that was a plot of genocide to exterminate the Jews entirely from the Persian Empire. And God averted it. But there's long history, and I've laid out here in my sermon just crusades, the crusaders, anti-Semitic, and sought to wipe out the Jews, First Crusade, 1096. During Black Death, the Jews were blamed for the Black Death, and so there were tremendous reprisals on the Jewish people. Muslims consistently wiped out communities of Jews in various lands in Morocco in the 8th century, in North Africa in the 12th century, Tunisia, Libya, other places in the 16th, 17th century. Moorish Spain saw a terrible massacre of Jews in Grenada, 1066. In Tsarist Russia in the 19th century, there were terrible pogroms, uh, attempt at genocide in, in, in Russia. Uh, the, the story Fiddler on the Roof has that as one of the significant themes in that. Uh, 20th century, of course, saw the greatest, uh, most organized attack on the Jews of all time under the Nazis, and then later again under the communists, the Holocaust on the Nazis and then the communists. Therefore, Jesus' prediction that the Jews would not be exterminated is amazing, and, and also that they would not be absorbed into the surrounding Gentile world. 
as many peoples have. People become extinct, like the last of the Mohicans. They're out. Moabites and Ammonites, they're gone. We don't know where they Maybe some people who have great, 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 whatever were Ammonites or Moabites, but we don't know them as such. That, those peoples are gone. But the Jews are still here, aren't they? And I believe Romans 9 through 11 teaches why. Because God's gifts and his purposes toward them are irrevocable. And he has a final chapter to tell. And I believe when it says in Romans 11, all Israel will be saved, he's talking about that final generation of Jews. There's going to be a mass revival. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So that's going to be a tremendous final act of redemptive history. So I think that's what it means. But if you have another um, interpretation of verse 30, come and tell me about it. I'll be at the back of the church, and you can tell me what you think. All right, now let's move on to eternity, verse 32. Verse, 30, uh, verse 31, Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. First of all, Jesus asserts that this physical universe itself is temporary. The physical universe is temporary, and many verses assert this. Hebrews 1, 10 through uh, 12 says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens of the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. Hebrews 1, 10 through 12. Or again, 2 Peter 3, 10. It says, The day the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. So there is nothing you see with your eyes or hear with your ears or touch with your hands. Nothing physical in the universe is eternal. The physical universe will someday pass away. But, second half of the statement, even more amazing, Christ's words will never pass away. Christ's words are eternal. They will last forever. In the new heavens and the new earth, Christ's words will be established and will be delighted in and celebrated and studied forever. We'll be feeding on them and resting on them and relying on them and pondering them, probing their depths forever. Now, you must see this as a claim to deity. Only God, almighty God, could make such a statement. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, the words I speak, will last forever. This is the very statement Jesus had made about the Old Testament, the laws of Moses and the prophets. He said, do not think, and this is in Matthew 5, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. God's word, Old Testament and New Testament, is eternal. It's eternal. And so he's equating his own words to the words of the Bible. And this assertion is proven true so far. And it reaches beyond the end of the world. Christ's word will stand forever. As Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let me say something. I, what, it's not in my sermon, but I want to mention it. About the earth, I do not believe that the new earth will be created ex nihilo out of nothing. I believe it will be this present earth, but in some sense, resurrected. I think there must be a continuity between the present earth and the new earth, or else the promise made to Abraham in Genesis 13 
walk through the land, go through the breadth of it, look and see. I will give this land to you, Abraham, and to your descendants forever. That promise is null and void. It didn't happen. Hebrews 11 said they died not having received the promise. There's an outstanding promise of the land still made to the patriarchs. So I believe that the new earth will be this earth resurrected, just like Abraham's new body will be his old body resurrected. So there's continuity and difference. That's what I believe about the earth. All right, so the purpose of Jesus' assertion is our faith and confidence. The most intensely wrenching circumstances in human history are described in this chapter. Horrendous suffering, famines, earthquakes, wars, rumors of wars, attacks on the church, destruction of Jerusalem, a tribulation so great that no one would survive if those days had not been cut short. The events are so immense and so stupendous, even to the shaking of the heavenly beings at the return of Christ, all of this tends to make us say, where can I stand? Where can I put my feet that won't move? And the answer is the word of God. Trust in the words of Christ. Rest securely on the foundation. And so that's the application I'm taking from this. Let's rest securely on the word of God, first and foremost, for your own salvation. Brent alluded to John 5, 24, and I'll just go ahead and quote it. John 5, 24, Jesus said, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death to life. What a beautiful statement that is. Has that happened to you? Have you heard Christ's words about your sinfulness, your violation of the laws of God, the corruption that comes up from your inner nature that defiles you and all of us, the ways you violated God's commands, the fact that there is no remedy, no works that could ever be done, but that Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many, and that if we believe our sins will be forgiven, like the paralyzed man, when he saw their faith, he said, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Has that happened to you? And if Jesus declares your sins are forgiven, they are forgiven. The question is, has that happened to you? So the foundation of your life, the word of God. Concerning the clarity, immediacy, difficulty, and eternity of God's word, first, clarity. Come to Christ Trust in him, and then he will give you the Holy Spirit to illuminate the word of God, and it will become increasingly clear to you by the power of the Spirit as you study it. Clarity. What about immediacy? Go back to Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He does that by the word of God and by the Spirit. Open the door, and he will come in and eat with you and you with him. Intimate fellowship with Christ is available. Immediacy. Again, Hebrews 3. As the Holy Spirit is saying to you right now, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. What does that go to? Anything covered in the Bible. Any topic in the Bible. If he's telling you what sin is and you're convicted, repent and make changes in your life. If he's giving you wisdom or promises or giving you guidance, follow it. Today if you hear his word, if you hear him speak, don't harden your heart. That's immediacy. Concerning the difficulty of the Word of God, there are always going to be passages where you're not quite sure what it means. Doesn't that show you that the Bible came from a mind so infinitely greater than any of ours? As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your ways higher than, God's ways higher than our ways, and God's words higher than our words. So expect difficulty. And then finally, eternality. I think it's exciting to think that when we get to heaven, 
we will still be learning, studying, and probing the extent and the dimensions of the words of Christ. To me, that's exciting. Close with me in prayer. Father, thank you for giving us a sure and certain foundation of our souls. We thank you that this foundation, the word of God, cannot be shaken. As Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Help us to build on the unshakable foundation of the Word of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.